Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the Atmosphere Podcast. Today, I'm talking to comedian and singer-songwriter Camila Valadio. In this episode, Camila and I discuss a few of her creative pursuits, mainly her current work as a stand-up comic and regional stand-up touring act. We explore what it's like to make people laugh, how she experiences bombing on stage, creative anxiety, and much more. In this episode, we also discuss her output as a musician, some reflections on her debut album, how her songwriting has shifted to better reflect who she is, as well as a TED Talk she did a few years ago. This episode was a bit shorter than the others because I'm a bit of a space cadet and realized five minutes before starting that Zoom no longer lets me record over 40 minutes without paying for a subscription. So one, I didn't feel like pressure buying a subscription, and two, we had already rescheduled twice. So in true existential fashion, we embraced the moment and went with it. I hope you all enjoy this short and sweet episode with this lovely and talented person. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Camila Valario. Hello. Does this work? Oh, shit. It does. I can hear you. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Hello, Camila Valario. Hi, how are you? Your hair looks great. Thanks. Likewise. Well, that's come on. <laughs> you're you're in you're in a, you're in a different time zone. You've had a few hours to prepare. I just woke up yeah, a you're while right. ago. <laughs> it's you're nice right, to see you. Right. It's, it's nice to see you, even if it's in this. It's nice to see you too. I know. Weird I miss format. your face. Likewise. All right. So I haven't done this in a long time. We've already started in all kinds of incorrect order, which is awesome. Um, I didn't even introduce you. This is Camila Valario, who happens to be a musician, a stand-up comic, and my cousin. Nice to have that. Nice to have Trinity. The Holy Trinity. (laughs) Triple threat. Nice to have (laughs) you on the Atmosphere podcast. Thank you for being here. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, We've got a limited time compared to the other ones because I am a space cadet um, and I messed up a few things and I haven't done this in a while and I have no production team. So we're kind of winging it here. So thanks for being here and thanks for your patience. Oh, please. I feel like I need a production team. I don't know why I can't get my audio to record on my end. It's all good, man. This will all be, this will all be good as we wing it. What's going on with you these days? Uh, Just really busy with standup primarily these days. Uh, I, I would say before the pandemic, about half of my time on stage was spent gigging just music, playing, you know, three hour sets and doing it pretty regularly at bars and restaurants and stuff around Michigan. But I haven't done one gig for just music since before COVID, since COVID. So uh, ever since then, it's just been comedy for me. So, okay, this is, this is a we're off to the races here because this is one of the things I was super curious about. Um, What did you always want to be a stand-up comic? How did this come to be? Um, I think I always did want to be one, but I didn't start realizing it. I didn't realize that that's what it was until my twenties. And then I was like, everything has led up to this point. And now I want to, I want to start pursuing it. And I didn't have any expectations of it when I started it. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, almost six years later, um, it takes up all of my time outside of work. Yeah. But how did it come to be? I mean, the, the, the switch. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And it's funny because I, when I first started with comedy, I didn't think for a second that I would bring music into it, which I do um, bring, I write some songs into some of my sets, but um, I, I, I don't know. My sister likes to say that I, I became a stand-up comic when I did her speech at her wedding. That's what my sister will say. That was the birth I'll of say, it. We'll yeah, give, it was, we'll, 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 we'll give credit to Mercedes. Yeah, she likes having the credit. She likes to be the starting point. That's cool. I like to think that it started when I did this uh, yoga and meditation retreat for a weekend. Uh, it was called like a goddess weekend. And it was all, it was a bunch of women I didn't know. And it was amazing, but also simultaneously hilarious. And when I came back, I immediately started doing stand up. So, so a few things kind of came together at the same time. And how, how much did COVID play into this? Because it's changed everybody's lives in unanticipated yeah. ways and depressing ways and maybe yeah. good ways. How much did that play in for you? Yeah. And I don't know if you felt the same way, but during COVID, I, I was not inspired to write anything. I, I wasn't productive in that way. I yeah. thought I, I would write anymore. so many jokes. I had no... I had no motivation to write even any music. Um, I played some songs to myself, but no, no jokes were written really. Mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of like poured myself into exercising and stuff like that during, during the pandemic when, when I was quarantining alone um, for many months. So yeah. Did you already have that lovely dog? I don't remember. I didn't have him. No, I didn't have him. Um, for the hardest part of COVID. And then yeah. when I came out of COVID and I, it kind of looked like working from home and being at home was going to be the regular for me. I was like, this is my time. I've been waiting for this moment to get a dog. And yeah, he's an angel dog. I love my dog so much. He is a pretty gorgeous. Pablo. Pablo. He's a pretty gorgeous dude. <laughs> yeah. He is. So tell us a little bit about your background. Where the hell are you from, Camila? Huh, well, I'm from where you're from. Um, <laughs> suburban los um, angeles or what do you mean? yeah <laughs> yeah um well uh as you know i'm from argentina but i didn't live there for very long we uh you were born my there, parents right? moved i was yeah. yeah but my sister who's older than me was born in california in hollywood that's right yeah um so my parents moved back or immigrated here and then had her in california and then they were like, this is too hard being away from family. Let's yeah. go back and be closer to our parents, yada, yada. They went back, waited a few years. They had me. And then I was about to turn three when they were like, this is just not, um, this is just not the, the place we want to raise our kids, you know, with everything from the economy to just like the, the third world nature that is any anywhere in South America, really just everything's harder, just a little bit harder. And then it's so much harder to, um, you know, in the United States, as you know, like you, you can work hard and you can bring yourself from a specific economic class to another economic class. And right. a lot of luck is involved there, but a lot of hard work is involved, but you can do that in Argentina your whole life and never, you know, save a penny. So, right. right. Um, yeah, they moved here and I moved. So I've been here since I was three. We I've lived in Michigan um, since. Yeah, since about then. So, yeah, yeah. I've been, well, been here forever. Yeah, it's a story. Obviously, I recognize from my family mm -hmm. who at a different point in time. I'm obviously a little older than you. I we kind of did the same thing. And I lived there. Yeah. And then it's like, wait, it's not. Yeah, we can't do it. So <laughs> my whole family came back to the States. Yeah. Same. And. 
I mean, for people even listening to this, the fact that I'm talking to you right now is crazy because I didn't grow up with any family um, around me. And maybe you, you had, you had, did you have family in California when you were growing up? Yeah. I mean, it was more like extended fake like family, deep, deep, <laughs> we could call it that. Yeah. I was thinking more <laughs> deep friendships. Well, in Spanish, we, yeah. you know, we call everybody, you know, yeah. or whatever. So yeah. they, they weren't actual blood relatives, but they, yeah. it was, it was something that felt like a family, but yeah. Is I mean, I don't know if you are aligned or agree with this, but often people are like, oh, how cool you're bicultural. But I've often felt like I was non-cultural. Like I didn't, I couldn't yeah. quite fit into either of them as opposed to fitting neatly into both of them. Yeah, totally. I feel the same way. I would say I highly identify with being American. Right. And if, and it's only strengthened by when I go back to Argentina, how different um, I feel from my cousins just totally. in, in the way of like, clearly I'm not, I don't even know the culture in Argentina. I know right. the culture of like drinking mate and speaking Spanish and dancing, like those things can translate and you can live that way here. But, you know, I, here, a good example that's, I don't know, popping into my mind is like, I've had a job since I was 14 and nine months when you can get a job permit Right. You know, and you can start working. I've been working since my teens. And in Argentina, kids don't work. They don't they don't work. There is no work for kids to do. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so like restaurants are like full time careers there. Um right, yeah. You yeah. know, um, so there's such a, a total disconnect between like my cousins, I can't identify they're like 19 years old and they're they don't they're not working. Um, and I, I'm like, that's crazy. In the United States, you start working the second you can, because why wouldn't you? You get that money. And it's yeah. a totally different mentality. And I, so I do feel very American in that aspect. Um, yeah. But then I also have a whole different part of me. You know, I speak Spanish. I identify with, you know, people who are struggling and who come from nothing because we really did come from nothing. And that's right, so right. that'll yeah. always be there too. It does offer us a bit of, I don't know what do you call it versatility i guess kind of you know it, being able to put a foot in each culture and understanding how truly different they do feel because i feel the same thing when i go back it's like yeah i mean i was raised with these ideas but mm -hmm. i'm really not from here in, yeah. in a real visceral way where i identify much more with how it is to live here yeah. And it even like security as an aspect, I think I'm just used to the way of life in the United States and it's a luxury to mm. be able to walk down the street with a necklace on and not think is someone going to steal it from me or to, to wear a purse. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's certain parts of Argentina where you will not wear a purse. Like you, you hide your purse in a grocery bag. So nobody thinks you have anything of value. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of security that we just don't even, we take for granted kind of here. You can go anywhere. I live downtown Detroit. I don't think twice about walking around with my Apple watch on, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's very different. Did you hear what happened to the vice president in the last few days in Argentina? No. She was, she was saying hello to people and someone just walked right up and pointed a gun to her face, pulled the trigger and the gun didn't go off. And, and it was on TV, it was on live TV as it happened. I mean, yeah. No, I can't I, believe I didn't see that. Yeah, the footage is pretty well, because you're busy writing jokes. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I honestly, I, I don't know, there's parts of me 
that doesn't want to watch the news anymore. I hear you. Um, I genuinely think I'd be happier if I didn't know what was going on. And then I feel dumb when I hear things like this and I'm like, I really should watch the news more. So I understand what's going on. Well, they've given it no real airtime here. I just happened mm-hmm. to run into it. I mean, it was kind of, a that's thing. wild. Yeah. It was pretty, I mean, the footage is pretty outrageous because it was it so weird and fast. It's kind of like the dude pulled the trigger, nothing happened. They apprehended him and she kind of kept saying hi to people. So yeah, it's a very, it's a very strange, strange thing. That's weird. I wonder if she was behind that. It almost sounds suspicious. Like I wouldn't just keep walking around after that. Yeah, I don't know. I think she was probably just so shocked that it just kind of, shocked, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm not going right. to speak on her behalf, but who knows what, but yeah, anyway, just a testament. To Interesting. The, That's the, so messed up. The crazy shit that happens in the deep South of the American continent. <laughs> yeah. Totally. The kind of stuff that if that had happened here, it would have it would make world headlines, you know? Right. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. But anyway. No. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't can't wanna, imagine. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to spend our precious time talking about politicians. <laughs> they kind of, they, 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 they often bore me, but yes. Yes. Agree. Um, I'm super interested to know how, and I want to get into the music bit too, but how, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I hold, stand-up comics in the highest regard I, I i just think it's such a fantastic art form for social commentary and the audience can't fake a reaction you either think something's funny or it isn't mm-hmm. so how do you begin the process of constructing a, a, a joke how, how does that work how do you begin writing yeah. something that ends up being funny to people well, you know, I think the second that I start dissecting it into like parts of a joke, which I, there is a formula to writing a joke. Um, but that for me is like where I start, where I forget about why I think something is funny, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think when I write a joke or when I, I, when I find my best jokes are, and the best jokes are the ones that you can make people laugh in any room on any day um, right. with those jokes. Um those are the jokes that I find are the ones that are funny to me personally funny, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, uh, unique to me. I think like when you start writing for other people is when you kind of lose the, uh, you lose the purpose and, and you can, you can lose the audience because they, you know, they see through it in some cases. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of somebody like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is notorious for, being such an architect you know and he'll mm-hmm. rewrite he'll go and try things and if people aren't laughing he'll retweak it and rewrite it and just the rhythm of the words he's very precise and other people like i don't know like andrew schultz or whatever they're very off the cuff they're just really yeah. driving off the crowd and i mean i've seen some of your stand-up and it seems like they are constructed jokes you're not just improvising up there no i i will say some of the pieces are improvised and that's it when they do well that's when you construct it but yeah i mean this is not an improvisational art form the a lot of the point of it is the process of talking to an audience and getting a better understanding of your joke honestly sometimes not putting it out there you got to put it on its legs Mm-hmm. and see how people react to it and then hear yourself say it. It's almost like going to therapy the second you hear yourself say something out loud 
Mm-hmm. It like disarms it and it changes it for you immediately. What a great um, point. Uh-huh. So yeah, put, giving it legs and then changing it as it goes. I mean, just this past weekend, I did a weekend at a club called One Night Stands in Waterford, Michigan. It's an awesome like uh, comedy club. Mm-hmm. And um, I I did jokes that I, I do all the time. I'm kind of building up. Um, I just started headlining this year. Um, so it's exciting because this is the point where I wanted, it was my goal was this year is the year I start headlining. I start doing 45 to 60 minute sets. So let's build it up. And so there's jokes that you have to say a lot in order to get to a point where you can continue to add to it. And so some of the jokes I said this weekend that I've said hundreds of other times were different. You know, you add things because of an audience member that maybe made you think of something that, well, that now has become a you know permanent installation in that joke or, oh, that's, I've said that differently than I've ever said it before. So there is a, an improv uh, factor that comes to play that you kind of have to in order to make a joke, you know, what it, what it should become. If that, right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a, a obviously a, a, a preparation. You go in there with an arsenal of jokes, but you're also vibing with what's happening in the room. And it's obviously going to change yeah. from night to night in, in accordance to that. Yeah. And I think that happens with time. I would say the first three or four years of doing comedy, it was very much like go up there, sink my teeth into what I brought for them for to like, if I had a 15 minute set, I would construct 15 minutes in my head ahead of time. And I would not veer from that plan. And as you get more into it, or maybe you have more like longer sets and you have the flexibility to play around with it, that's when it becomes a little more fluid and less rigid. Um, Mm. And so you can make some choices that you wouldn't have otherwise made, but it's not like the way that I did it when I first started doing comedy, which was, you wrote this joke, you know that it's funny, you think it's funny, audiences have laughed before, let's keep saying it until something happens Mm. um, to change it. Yeah, so I don't know if you know, well, obviously, you know, I'm a therapist, but like my modality, you know, I'm an existential therapist. And one of the sort of tenets of exploring from an existential perspective is this idea of having to, we really don't have a choice in the matter of having to coexist with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Life just has built in uncertainty. We can't plan 100%. It just it's mm-hmm. not a thing. How do you coexist with uncertainty in the world of comedy, stepping on a stage and really not knowing ever 100% how things are going to pan out? How, how does that feel for you? Yeah. Well, when I, I get anxious and nervous, I've been going on stage since I was five, and I still get super anxious and nervous before I go on stage but I always remind myself like nobody is forcing you to do this. I've never felt that someone is forcing me to do this, but in moments where I'm like, why am I doing this? Hasn't happened in a long time, but I always anchor on this is like, this is your joy. Like this, you're doing this for fun. This is, this is what brings you to the place that you want to be and the mindset that you want to be in. And there's no other way to get there. You're not going to get there by sitting at home or watching a show or, going out to eat. Like for me, the only way that I get there is by going on stage and telling jokes and hoping I make people laugh. But even when I don't make people laugh and that's when it feels most like work and less like fun, mm-hmm. um, I still get something out of it. Like I still feel like I did the work. And so 
despite it being, and, you know, hopefully the bombing is fewer and farther between and it doesn't happen every single time. You know, there's some comics that bomb for years before they start getting into a stride. And I, um, I, I feel for that because you have to try, like, if you bomb every single day, every single time you go on stage and you still believe in your art and you still believe that you're good and that you're meant to be doing this and you eventually start killing it, um, power to you. That's, that's tough mentally, I think. Um, but you just, I, for me, I'm like, I feel very fortunate to do it. It's like a luxury. I have a full-time job that allows me the privilege of being able to do it and not, and not depend on it for income. Would I like to depend on it for income? Yeah. I wouldn't mind having it be my full-time gig, but it would require a lot, um, of success. <laughs> um, yeah. So you talked about bombing. Um, I, I think I might have to offer an apology here because we haven't done this in so long. I just realized that I forgot to hit record on my, remember how I kept telling you, use the oh, software, yeah. use Ableton. I fucking forgot to press record on GarageBand. So this will probably be oh. like a Zoom thing for a few minutes. Okay. But anyway, it'll, I mean, it, it's nothing on your end. It's on my end. Okay. But just a testament in real time. I kind of bombed right now in my own podcast because ah. I forgot to hit record, but um, it's still recording on Zoom. So we're good. Okay. Um, so this is, this is actually perfect because I was really curious. Um, wh what is it like psychically to, to use your words to bomb in front of an audience? What's that like for you to experience like, oh shit, they're not, they're not responding. Um, I think that it's many emotions, but the one that it feels the most obvious is embarrassment. It's like, uh, it's a terrible feeling. I mean, it isn't a good feeling. Um, but after a while, it only feels that way the moment that you're doing it. And then maybe that night after, after a while you look back on bombing and you're like, it's a rite of passage. You have to bomb, you have to bomb. Um, and for me, what bombing feels like is like a lack of connecting with the audience. And when I bomb, it's, I don't know, a lot of people like to blame the audience and I always blame myself um, for not connecting with the audience. It's not the audience's fault that you're not connecting with them or that they didn't find your jokes funny. So you have to find a way. And I think like, because if you can look at bombing as a natural part of the process of doing standup, then you can then look at bombing as like, how can I make the bombing better next time? Like, how can I pivot? How can I, what can I, what can I pull out in those moments that instead of just sinking my heels into my material, like th that, those are the parts that make you, uh, I think a better performer is being able to figure out what to do. Or sometimes the decision is just to plow through it, which I've done. And it's like, yeah, they didn't, they didn't think it was funny, but I did my set and I went there to do 25 minutes and they didn't think like they laughed twice, you know, or I sunk my heels into it and I did my set or, Hey, that was cool. Instead of doing this 10 minute bit, I, you know, talked to them about their marriage for 10 minutes, you know, so. So you do adapt on the fly. I mean, it sounds like you're describing, Sometimes. you know, you're literally, you're reading the room and it's like, oh shit, I got to try, I got to switch something up here quickly Yeah. to some degree. Yeah. I would say the best shows are the ones when you have time to read the room before you go up there, but you don't always have that luxury. Sometimes you have the ability to read the room, to 
you know, go to the bathroom and and hear what people are saying and like walk around and see what people are like looking at and then to play off of that. And I think like that, that makes people feel a little bit better, but yeah, it's kind of like a mental exercise every time figuring out like, how do I quickly and most efficiently connect with this audience so that they feel safe to laugh with me? Nowhere in what you're saying do I hear, <laughs> this is probably my skewed perspective as a therapist, because I, I, you know, a lot of the explorations we do are about what does it say about me, for example, that I'm bombing as a comic. I don't hear anything in your language where there, you don't, you don't ascribe it to some, something of your character. It's like, this is a circumstantial thing here. It's, it's, it's this particular moment, this particular environment, but yeah. it's not me. Like it's not Camila that sucks. Yeah. This is a opportunity for learning and for working at it th from a different angle. Would you say that that's accurate or? Yeah, actually. So, um, not intentionally, um, I guess it, I wasn't intentionally not including that. I think if I had started doing comedy earlier and not in my late twenties, early thirties, earlier when I took things more personally, maybe, um, you know, I think like now I have a better sense of self. And so I'm able to take a beating emotionally a bit easier and not have it reflect on my like long-term view of who I am. But I mean, yeah, my jokes are a reflection of who I am. At the end of the day, I think like audiences want to see, like, I don't know, I watched a special this week for a famous stand-up comic that just released a special on Netflix and he's really funny. And a lot of his topics I thought seemed like taboo or just like basic, like he making, making commentary on the war and making commentary on politicians and making commentary on abortion and making commentary on like all the things that you would expect someone to want to make a comment on because it's all the main events. And I was like, that's so boring. I want to see him be human and I want to hear what's weird about him. And eventually he did get weird. I connected more with that, which was a unique to him situation rather than I don't care about your take on X, Y, and Z. I don't need a take on the current events from everyone. I want to hear why, why you like, I want to hear the weird stuff. And so like, for me, that's what I'm trying to, to, to bring more into my comedy, which is like, what makes me weird? Why is my brain weird? And I think like, doesn't matter who an audience is, if you're being vulnerable and like sharing why you think this is funny, like they will laugh with you. Um, usually. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point you're expressing the desire that we all seem to have to see someone's humanity, mm -hmm. which is it, which art is such a conduit for that. And perhaps it's maybe more, well, I don't know if it's more obvious, but it seems like musicians, the musicians where we really see their humanity, we resonate with them more than, yeah. than somebody who's yeah just doing the, yeah. Well, this people like leave their houses and spend money on tickets to go see comedy. And no, I mean, the stand-up comic I'm a big fan of and the special was amazing. It wasn't like short of that. I was just, you know, ah, I wish he had spent 45 minutes talking about how weird he is or like the weird stories of his childhood and like his weird quirks and stuff like not, not the stuff that you hear 
you know, on a late night show that they're commenting on because they have to because the mainstream media needs to make a play and everything. It goes without saying that you are preferring to not mention said comedian. I'm thinking of two people that it might be, but we could just leave it there if you don't want to mention. Do you want me to mention it? I mean, I guess I don't care. It's not like he's ever going to. His name is. Oh, yeah. Um, Uh Yeah, he's a great. I mean, like probably top five comics right now. He's just Mm -hmm. really exciting that he got a special on Netflix, like huge. And it was uh, produced by this guy who's like pretty massive. Um, He like knows a lot of people from the Michigan scene. So an amazing special. Um, I loved his special, but it got weirder as it went on. And I found myself thinking, I like that. I like it when it's weirder. Like I want to hear, I want to hear about him jerking off with his best friends when he was little. Like, that's what I want to (laughs) hear. I don't want to hear him talking about abortion. I'm like, ugh, whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm glad he's commenting on it. I think everybody should have an opinion on that. And I think their opinion should align with mine. I'm just kidding. But um. <laughs> so maybe, maybe not a big fan of how Bill Burr approached. I don't know if you saw that his special at Red Rocks. Oh, actually, I haven't watched Bill Burr's special at Red Rocks. Yeah, he has a, a very uh, interesting uh, actually whole, like whole bit him. about abortion. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, I think I've heard a, a, a clip of that. I actually like Bill Burr. I think that that's a, like a lot of people have hot takes on him saying, I don't like, you know, they don't like how, um, like crude he is and how, you know, like, yeah, it comes off as maybe misogynistic sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. but he's not, he's, um, I really like his honesty, but that's him. He's being himself. I like when people are trying, are just being, you know, up there writing for themselves. And, And I, I've, I've heard some of your, work in in comedy where you are dancing the line on the controversial i'm thinking of a particular joke about james franco and the me too movement <laughs> that you did a, a few years ago and i remember thinking holy shit man that's a ballsy that's a ballsy take in the middle of the u2 movement but so how is that for you to sort of approach something where i suspect you imagine you might get some pushback but you still yeah. go ahead and do it how is that for you um, I, I don't actually do that song anymore. You're, you're, I think you're, um, jokes evolve as you learn more about why you think it's funny. I think like early on in the me too movement, um, it was confusing. I think for everyone is like so much news was overwhelming the media about like their, all their heroes and famous people and the people that you'd been following and admiring for decades coming into the limelight for the me too movement. And I decided to start writing jokes about like individuals that I felt were being misappropriately or disproportionately judged for their cancellation. But that said, I don't necessarily like, I don't, I won't go to God with that. Like that's not at a hundred percent, my opinion. I just think it's funny sometimes to talk about, um, to talk about that. But yeah, I was a big James Franco fan. So when he got canceled, I was pretty upset. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's a good yeah. joke though. I mean, it actually made me laugh. And I also thought, fuck, that's ballsy. It um, made me laugh. I was probably, it was in my first seven minute set. So like lit- six years ago, it was one of my first jokes I ever wrote. Um, and so my point of view has certainly evolved since then, but yeah, it's uh yeah, it was, I just like, so I wasn't expecting to ever write music with comedy, but because I'm a songwriter, 
and have been a songwriter much longer than I was a comedian. It does seem natural in the way of like, um, I like to write songs in, in for comedy, for comedic purpose when you can't really say it or it's not going to be as funny if you say it. And if you can write, you like Bo Burnham is a really great example of yes. doing that too. Yeah. Where it's almost like musical theater. There's a purpose behind spoken word and there's a purpose behind song. And, and you couldn't do one without the other. You couldn't tell the story without the other. So that's kind of how I think of, um, how I think of writing music into comedy. It's like, all right, um, let's talk about the me too movement. Um, I'm going to write a song about it, you know, to, to say something that wouldn't be funny if I was, if I was, or like I wrote a song called real love about my boyfriend, about how love is not really, um, glamorous or cute or, um, and it's just kind of like gross, but that's just like love. And so it's just, you know, in my opinion, funny to write like a sultry love song that, about something that's not s sultry at all. <laughs> well said. I'm <laughs> looking, I just got a, 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 a warning. Um, so full disclosure, I fucked up this whole meeting and how I scheduled it. We only have like seven and a half minutes left because I'm a bozo. So I apologize to you and to no. everybody else. Um how do you miss the 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 songwriting and the gigging that you used to do and, and how is your songwriting now are you writing a lot of music or no um i have not written music but actually where i'm sitting right now i just built a studio at my new place in detroit because i've been feeling inspired to write music more lately um and I was thinking about starting a podcast to, to start doing it a bit more, but I don't know. I'll see where that takes me. But I, I kind of have studio space now where I feel comfortable to to write music and I want to get back into it. I have a lot of songs that I need to finish, like half written songs that um, never were completed. So maybe you can maybe you can help me with those. That would um, be that would be fantastic. You just did like a public call out and I will respond in. Yeah. The, in the affirmative. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> I. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I have a lot of songs that I have the motivation now to finish them. I ha also have songs that I fully recorded in a studio that I haven't released. So I need to just get oh. all my stuff on top of um, getting that out and released. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit because there's been so you did a you did a debut album that's available for people to hear. Um, you're laughing. What? <laughs> you're making a face. <laughs> um Another Good Mistake, right? Is that the name of the record? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there was a very big leap into something that felt much more personal, almost like the way you're describing some of the way you describe the comedy, where I felt more connected to you mm -hmm. as a listener. I'm talking about the song Ghost Town, mm -hmm. um, which I, as far as I know, that's the only thing you've put out that's available publicly post that record mm -hmm. what happened with that first record and then into this other yeah facet let's say that feels much more personal and much more Camila yeah so when I did that first record I was like in my early 20s and I was approached by a local songwriter who was a retired um man um Mark Hauptschein who wrote all of the songs in the record, another good mistake. Um, oh, so you weren't a writer. I didn't get any, songs. not officially. So mm. we, we worked on that 
record for, I would say two years about. Um, and he had, so originally he approached me basically as a studio musician to uh -huh. say, Hey, can I pay you to record all the songs I wrote to interpret or some songs? songs. Yeah. And it turned into a much larger project with a contract and him fronting all of the money to, to produce and master and record all the instruments and hire the musicians. And it was, so it was all his music and his vision though a lot of the songs were written for me or changed for me or by me. Um, but I didn't get writing credit on the, on the album, which I think years later kind of, kind of like hit me the wrong way. I was like, Hey, what? that's interesting because we worked on that song together and like I helped with that bridge and I didn't get any writing credit. Not that it matters, but that's, I think why the art, that album doesn't feel as like, authentic to me because it's not really my voice. Um, I had been a songwriter prior to that for years already, but none of my music really made it to it. So it did very much in retrospect, feel like not my album. And that's why you can't really hear me. You could just hear me as a, a singer in it, but I, yeah. So ghost town, I'm happy. I was able to release that right as the pandemic, um, began and uh, it kind of halted the rest of the songs. I think I have like two or three others that are in the works there that I would love to get out there. So that would be fantastic. Um, yeah. 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 Ghost Town being the first of them. But yeah, I have I have quite a few songs that I would love to to get out. Um, so mm -hmm. we'll see. We'll mm -hmm. see what happens. Maybe I'll start just doing a SoundCloud. That would be great. Yeah. Cool. So. Oh. I'm sorry I keep bringing this up. It's just so annoying that we're running out of Three time minutes. so quickly. I'm literally looking at a countdown clock. I have it here too. Oh, good grief. Um, what's in the future for you? What, what does the next year look like? For a you? lot of comedy. Um, yeah. Next week, I'm performing at what's called the Motor City Comedy Festival, which is really exciting. And I'm performing with a comic who is pretty up and coming and, and massive right now, Brian Simpson, who's, um, if you like watching stand-up, he had a special on Netflix called The Stand-Ups and Brian Simpson is his name. Um, and then in October, I'm doing another festival called Laugh Out, Laugh After Dark um, Festival in Vegas. So I'll be performing out there and they have me as like in the musical comedy genre. So I'll be doing a show with, uh, I think three other, four other musical comedians. Um, so I'm interested to see that because there's a lot of industry that goes there. I know the producer of South by Southwest comedy is going there and a lot of other industries. So hopefully I can make some connections so I can go out and do some cool performances next year. That's wonderful. And now yeah. as I keep looking at this goddamn clock, um, tell me a little bit, how did the, you did a Ted talk? How did that come to be? Yeah. When I was approached to do a TED talk, I was like, I don't have anything to say. Like, I mean, I have my life to talk about and that's pretty much it. And they were like, you can say whatever, just make them laugh and make them cry. I was like, all right, well, I pretty much just built them like jokes, built the story like jokes. Of course, I'm not used to being a clean comic. I like to be a little more off the cuff. So it had to be very thoughtfully constructed. Uh, but yeah, I did a TEDx in Detroit last November and it was an, an amazing experience, just such a such a awesome opportunity to like figure out the why behind my story. <laughs> Cause you know, a Ted talk has to have a beginning and a middle and an end, but a theme throughout and like you have to land the plane and that's not something that you're used to in stand up. You're not used to telling one overarching story. Um, so it was awesome. 
it was a great experience and like something that'll exist until my kids are able to see it too. So it's kind of scary to think about. <laughs> right on. Camila, for the elderly uh, folks in our audience, because uh, the younger people laugh at me when I ask this question, but where can people find you uh, on on the internet? What, what the... Yeah, I have a website. It's camilabellario.com. So uh, C-A-M-I-L-A, Bellario, B-A-L-L-A-R-I-O.com is my website. And you can keep up to date with everything. If you're on Instagram, I'm on there. It's just at Camila Bellario. And uh, those are the two that I'm most active on. My website's always up to date and my Instagram is always active. Wonderful. Camila, yeah. it's been a real treat. This feels so uh, like it went by so quickly. Um, I know. But We've been you. robbed. I know we have been. Well, it's my, my own doing, my own space cadetness. No. But uh, we may have to do this again in a longer format where we're not restricted by time. But thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. It's been a pleasure. I've been wanting to do this a long time with you in particular. So thank you for, for doing this. And there it is. Bye.